Section 6 of Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers by J. Walker McSpadden Lee, Part 2 At Vera Cruz, Lee had the pleasure of meeting his older brother, from whom he had long been separated. This was Lieutenant Sidney Smith Lee, who had entered the Navy before Robert went to West Point. Now for the first time, the brothers, sailor and soldier, fought side by side. But it was with mixed feelings that Robert Lee passed through this experience. He was brave enough on his own account, but he constantly trembled for Sidney. He had placed a battery in position to reduce the town, and thus describes the ensuing action. The first day this battery opened, Smith served one of the guns. I had constructed the battery, and was there to direct its fire. No matter where I turned, my eyes reverted to him, and I stood by his gun whenever I was not wanted elsewhere. Oh, I felt awfully, and am at a loss what I should have done had he been cut down before me. I thank God that he was saved. He preserved his usual cheerfulness, and I could see his white teeth through all the smoke and din of the fire. When the soldiers moved inland, after capturing Vera Cruz, the sailors were left behind, and Lee had to bid his brother farewell. The records of the six months' campaign in Mexico contain many references to Lee's skill and bravery. He was then forty years old, in the heyday of his vigor. He would remain in the saddle from dawn to twilight if necessary, and never shirked the duty. No wonder that Scott was proud of him and came to rely upon him more and more. At Chapultepec, he writes, Captain Lee was constantly conspicuous, bearing important orders till he fainted from a wound and the loss of two nights' sleep at the batteries. The campaign certainly showed that Lee was a soldier and the son of a soldier. He was repeatedly cited for meritorious conduct, and was breveted major, lieutenant colonel, and colonel in rapid succession. This proved not merely his bravery, but his ability in planning engagements and discovering the weak points of the enemy, features which he was to turn to such remarkable account in many famous battles of the Civil War. When peace with Mexico was declared, Lee was given a welcome furlough and went back to Arlington to visit his wife and children. He had been so constantly away from home that he failed to recognize his youngest son, whom he had left as an infant, and it is said that he himself was first recognized by a faithful dog. His son and namesake, R. E. Lee, in his recollections, speaks of his father's love for animals. He once rescued a dog that was near drowning in the Narrows, and it became his devoted follower through life. In a letter home he writes, one of many such references, Cannot you cure poor Speck, his dog? Cheer him up. Take him to walk with you, and tell the children to cheer him up. We have already spoken of his favorite horse, Traveler, after the Great War, during which horse and rider were inseparable, 
Lee wrote a description and tribute to his equine friend, which must appeal to every true lover of horses. Lee's two elder sons held true to the family traditions by both entering West Point. Lee himself was presently sent there by the government as superintendent, just twenty-three years after he had graduated. He served in this capacity for three years, then was given an assignment to the cavalry with rank of lieutenant colonel. For the next five years, his duty took him into several states, chiefly in the West and Southwest. It was an unsettled time on the border, both from the Mexicans at the South and the Indians in the West, and constant police duty was necessary. It was arduous and lacked the thrill of a real campaign, but in any event, it kept Lee from growing rusty as a soldier. Unconsciously to him and to his government, it was shaping him and fitting him for the great drama just ahead. For slowly but surely, the North and the South were drifting apart. At first, the discussion had been political, but now it was growing more and more personal and bitter. The disputed questions were slavery and states' rights. A preliminary cloud in the sky was the fanatical raid of John Brown, who in 1859 tried to stir up the Negroes of Northern Virginia against their masters. The raid was promptly crushed at Harper's Ferry, and Lee, with his regiment of cavalry, assisted in restoring order. But though John Brown's body lay moldering in the grave, his soul went marching on. While many Southerners did not own slaves and did not believe in slavery, the question of states' rights found them with undivided front. Had not this doctrine been expressly implied in the Federal Constitution, had not this right been invoked more than once in the North by the staunch state of Massachusetts, for example, as early as 1809 and as lately as 1842? Thus they reasoned, and when matters at last reached the breaking point in 1861, the southern states, following South Carolina's lead one by one, felt that they were acting only within their recognized rights. The actual call to arms brought a heartbreaking time to many homes. In some it actually parted father and son, or brother and brother. While it created no such chasm in the Lees family, it brought to Robert E. Lee the bitterest and most trying decision of his whole life. Lee had loved his country. He had served her faithfully for thirty-two years. His actions, rather than his words, had proved his entire devotion. But the words, too, were not lacking, as references to his letters will show. One such glimpse of his heart is seen in a letter written from Texas in 1856. In telling his wife about his Fourth of July celebration, he says, Mine was spent after a march of thirty miles on one of the branches of the Brazos, under my blanket, elevated on four sticks driven into the ground as a sunshade. The sun was fiery hot, the atmosphere like a blast from a hot air furnace, the water salt. Still my feelings for my country were as ardent, my faith in her future as true, and my hope for her advancement as unabated as they would have been under better circumstances. When finally the choice had to be made between state and nation, Lee was sore beset. 
He had no interest in the perpetuation of slavery. His views all tended the other way. In this enlightened age, he wrote, there are few, I believe, but will acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil. He had already set free his own slaves and was in favor of freeing all the slaves in the South. But when it came a question of deserting his own state, his beloved Virginia, the problem was far more difficult. All night nearly he paced his chamber, says Thomas Nelson Page, often seeking on his knees the guidance of the God he trusted in. But in the morning light had come. His wife's family were strongly union in their sentiments, and the writer has heard that powerful family influences were exerted to prevail on him to adhere to the union side. My husband has wept tears of blood, wrote Mrs. Lee to his old commander Scott, who did him justice to declare that he knew he acted under a compelling sense of duty. Lee had no illusions as to the sternness of the contest and the sacrifices that he with others would have to make. His own beautiful home lay just across the river from Washington. He must have seen with prophetic vision how it would be seized by the federal government and held for other purposes, an act of confiscation that was only partially atoned for a half a century later. He also knew that Virginia, being a border state, would bear the brunt of the war. I can contemplate no greater calamity for the country than the dissolution of the Union, he wrote in January, and in April that dissolution came. Nor did the fortunes of war itself swerve him from the belief that, in serving his state, he was doing his highest duty. After it was over, and he had gone into retirement of work in Washington College, we find him writing to General Beauregard as follows. I need not tell you that true patriotism sometimes requires men to act exactly contrary at one period to that which it does at another. And the motive which impels them, the desire to do right, is precisely the same. History is full of illustrations of this. Washington himself is an example. Here he invokes the example that had been his guiding star since early boyhood. He fought at one time against the French under Braddock, in the service of the King of Great Britain. At another, he fought with the French at Yorktown, under orders of the Continental Congress against him. He has not been branded by the world with reproach for this, but his course has been applauded. While Lee was wrestling with his momentous decision, a further temptation was placed in his path, which he thrust aside. He was offered the high post of Commander-in-Chief of the Union Forces. This offer came as a suggestion from Scott that Colonel Lee would be worth 50,000 troops to our side, and although Lincoln had never met him, he was glad to accede to the suggestion. Lee quietly remarked in declining the honor, I stated as candidly and as courteously as I could that, though opposed to secession and deprecating war, I could take no part in an invasion of the southern states. Such was the manner of man who was soon chosen to lead the Confederate armies. Let us pause for the final picture of the man himself from a composite by men who knew him.
In physique, Lee was every inch a man. He stood five feet eleven inches in height, weighed a hundred and seventy-five pounds, and there was not an ounce of superfluous flesh on him. He was as fine-looking a man as one would wish to see, said General Hunt, of perfect figure and strikingly handsome. General Meigs added, Lee was a man, then in the vigor of youthful strength, with a noble and commanding presence, an admirable, graceful, and athletic figure. General Preston remarked that he had a countenance which beamed with gentleness and benevolence. J.S. Wise said, I have seen all the great men of our times, except Mr. Lincoln, and I have no hesitation in saying that Robert E. Lee was incomparably the greatest-looking of them all. And Alexander H. Stevens, when he saw Lee for the first time and talked of the newly-born Confederacy, was moved in his enthusiasm to say, as he stood there fresh and ruddy, as a David from the sheepfold, in the prime of manly beauty and the embodiment of a line of heroic and patriotic fathers and worthy mothers, it was thus I first saw Robert E. Lee. I had before me the most manly and entire gentleman I ever saw. Lee's fame as a general of the first rank has survived the overly enthusiastic eulogies of his friends and the first caustic comments of his foes. His strategy has come to be recognized as of the highest order. To begin with, he had to build his army from the ground up, but ended by having one of the most perfect fighting machines in the history of warfare. His men obeyed him with a devotion that was almost idolatrous. He suggested the uniform of quiet gray on account of its protective coloring and against all the army traditions of ages that an army should march into action in gaudy and glittering attire. It was not until the great world war of a century later that wise military leaders followed his example and dressed their troops as inconspicuously as possible. It is not the province of this short sketch to trace General Lee's campaigns step by step to the final meeting with Grant at Appomattox. Army after army was sent to meet him from the North's far greater resources, only to be baffled or defeated in the South. And it was not until he forsook his successful tactics of the defensive and assumed the offensive on his invasion of Pennsylvania that he encountered serious defeat at Gettysburg. But after all, the great foe to whom his troops had finally to succumb was general starvation. The resources of the South were literally exhausted. My men are starving, said Lee tersely to Grant, and back of them lay a suffering land that had literally been bled white. It was indeed a bitter lesson that the South had learned, but the verdict of history is that it was salutary. The Union was greater than any state or group of states. It had required a war to rectify that fatal flaw in the Constitution, but out of the fires of that terrible conflict was fused a Union, strong and great, that should be far better fitted to withstand the shock of time. Since that bygone day, when Lee laid aside his sword forever and his men went straggling back to their plowshares, 
America has been engaged in two other wars, and among the first to respond to the bugle call and line up behind Old Glory have been the sons and grandsons of that staunch line of gray, the men who followed Lee. If the souls of great soldiers ever come back to earth, we can imagine no finer picture than the leader of a lost cause, again looking up to the stars and stripes, and pledging it his silent allegiance. We can see him on his familiar gray charger at the head of his forces, fighting again for his beloved country. We can seem to hear his voice ringing in command, On, men of Virginia, on, men of the South, we are Americans all. Important Dates in Lee's Life 1807, January 19th, Robert Edward Lee, born. 1825, entered West Point. 1829, graduated second in his class, made second lieutenant in engineers. 1831, married Mary Custis. 1838, appointed captain. 1845, joined General Scott's staff in Mexico. 1848, made colonel for gallant conduct. 1852, appointed superintendent of West Point. 1855, appointed lieutenant colonel of cavalry in service against Indians. 1861, made general in Confederate Army. 1865, surrendered to Grant. 1865, accepted presidency of Washington College, Virginia. 1870, October 12th, died at this college. End of Lee, Part 2 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas